0: Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks, and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan.
1: Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Kelly McMillan, and for the next hour, we're going to be talking about uh, firearms and shooting and almost anything related to the firearms industry uh, excited about the show today but um, i'm actually even more excited about tomorrow tomorrow i leave for ottawa canada and i'm going to join the u.s um, shooting team both the f class open and ftr teams they're going to be competing next week for the world championship so i'm going to be up there at, at connaught uh, rooting them on uh, sharing in the excitement, and hopefully sharing in uh, another world championship for the US, uh, USA team. So that's going to be really exciting. I'm really uh, looking forward to that. Uh, today, we've got uh, a couple of really cool guests. I'm really excited to bring our first guest on. His name is Nick, but if anybody knows him, he goes by Beard. But his name is Nick Owens and owns Owens Armory. Uh, Nick, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thanks for
1: having me. Yeah, glad to have you on. Uh, it's been a while since we've got to sit down and talk, uh, spend a little time with uh, Thomas at the King of Two Mile. He's a character. I was hoping he was going to join us on the show today, but unfortunately, he hasn't been able to make it in. So um, we're just going to have to depend on you to pull his weight for him. So Yeah, no uh, problem. I don't have the
2: personality of Thomas, but I'll do my best.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you've got the beard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All um, right. Why don't you take just a, a couple of minutes and let our listeners get to know you a little bit, share a little bit about where you grew up, uh, how you grew up, what you you did as a, a kid and how you got into shooting and where you're at today.
2: Well, I uh, was born in Prescott, Arizona, um, pretty much lived here my whole life, other than moving around a little bit. My dad was young, um, but he was a minor. And then I've always been into shooting my whole life. My family, my dad's family has always been big shooters and uh, just always loved shooting. And about, I don't know, a year or nine years ago, started getting into some long-range stuff and some local matches, and it just took off from there, really.
1: Uh, What type of matches?
2: Oh, they were having some long-range precision rifle matches in Prescott. This guy named Brad Peck would put them on, and that's where I started.
1: Hmm. You currently, you live in Chino Valley, Arizona, which is just down the road from Paulden, uh, which is where Gunsight is. Is that correct?
2: Yep. Our shop is actually maybe a mile from Gunsight, right across the highway.
1: Oh, cool. Uh, Do you ever spend any time there?
2: Yeah, a little bit. We put on a big rifle match this year for the NRL um, at Gunsight. About 100 shooters from across the country came and shot it.
1: Uh, why don't you tell us about that? Was it your first shoot that you've actually put on?
2: Yeah. You know, we've, we've spent a lot of years shooting matches and traveling, and we decided that it was our turn to put one on. And um, we went out to Gunsight and worked out a deal with them. And um, the NRL was kind of new to, the, to putting on events for precision rifle shooting. And we worked with them and partnered and um, went out there and put on a big match. So there's about well, I got a lot of feedback all over the country.
1: Yeah, I got a lot of feedback from a, a bunch of shooters. I know McMillan Fiberglass Stocks was a sponsor and and uh, donated a, a couple of certificates and uh, a, a lot of good feedback. Uh, I know that you had some help from some uh, of our local shooters here in town, the Milkoviches, I I know they uh, they had volunteered to come out and help you with the the match. Uh, uh, they spoke very highly about how the match was run and how well it did.
2: Awesome. Thank you. And thanks for your guys support. We ended up giving the prize rifle on a McMillan stock and a few stocks away. And without all the vendors out there, none of this stuff would happen, you know.
3: Beard and Xavier, uh, when I got your bio, uh, I was pleased to see that it was your wife who bought you your first, uh, I guess, 308 uh, rifle. And that's how you got involved. Is that correct?
2: <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, I grew up with, You know, we shot M1As, and my dad owned a Barrett 50, and we'd go out and shoot rocks, but we didn't really know what we were doing, you know. And then I was about 22, my wife bought me a Remington 700 Police, you know, 308, and I kind of just, I put a um, Leopold Mark IV 16 power on it, and then that's where I just started going out and teaching myself how to shoot long range. And went to my first local match, didn't know a single person there, and just, went from there now my my best friends are all in the same
3: community so you know it's funny a lot of the successful guys that that we know in the industry their wives are behind them 100 percent i related to that because when i moved out here to arizona uh my wife at the time uh who's a former idf soldier bought me my first ar-15 and when it arrived she actually stripped it down in about 32 seconds and i thought that was really (laughs) cool so i appreciate the women in our lives (laughs) Yeah,
2: she's a trooper. I mean there was a few years there in the shooting PRS and traveling and I mean to travel every month for a big match and then every other weekend we'd be shooting local matches and I spent a lot of time from home shooting and you know, she supports me and it just blew up from there.
1: I can relate to having the support of the women in your family. I know my uh, wife is sitting two offices down right now taking care of some of the financial stuff. She spent uh, half of last week in Washington, D.C. at a uh, an uh, ITAR seminar for uh, exporting and stuff. So she works real hard in support of the company and anything that we choose to do. She's, she's always oh, behind yeah. it. And then my daughter's in the office right next to me. She's our CEO in training, and uh, she supports everything we do. We actually went to the uh, Scottsdale Gun Club yesterday afternoon and shot a little bit. So she's into – she. the more she shoots, the more she wants to shoot. You know, I think that's like most people. So yeah, it's, it's right. good to have the women in your life to support what you do. And, and for me, since I spend so much of my life running this business, um, to have them both involved in it is really cool.
3: And I think your mom was uh, right there when your dad was building on the kitchen
1: table. Absolutely, yeah. So that's how the yeah, family business I mean, that's pretty goes. cool heritage. I understand you you're involved in a family business kind of outside the firearms industry, but why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so we, we own a company called Drill Tech. We drill commercial and residential water wells all over the state and New Mexico, Nevada, and I mean that's pretty much my real job. Um, so what happened once we started building guns is, you know, I was doing it on the weekends and uh, after work, and it was just consuming too much time, and I decided to make it into a real business, and that's when I called Thomas, and it's like, hey, man, you want to partner up on this? And So Thomas is really the man behind the scenes that does most of everything through Owen's Armory, and I'm still drilling wells.
1: <laughs> well, I've but heard that... Yeah, it's uh, a
2: family business. My dad owns it. My mom works there. I work there. we got about 45 employees.
1: I've heard that you've drilled almost every well in that valley that, that we're in. You know, As you know, I have a second home not too far from where you're at. and uh, I think right. just about everything in the Williamson Valley, uh, Paulden area, you've drilled every well, haven't you?
2: Oh, we've drilled a lot of them, and if it wasn't me, it was another part of my family because I have two uncles that own drilling companies in the town also. So Somewhere okay. in my blood, probably
1: drilled it. <laughs> That's cool. So, why don't we tell the listeners how they can find out about Owens Armory?
2: Well, we got our website. Um, our online sales aren't fully up and running, but all of our contact information is there. Um, we got our, our website at www.owensarmory.com. Um, I do a lot of work through Facebook and the messaging and Instagram. I've got an Instagram account, which uh, it seems to be I get more work from Instagram and Facebook than anything, honestly. Um, And and you go check me out on any of that, and you can message me, and we'll get you going.
3: Beard, when you build a custom rifle and somebody comes to you and, and says they want one, you obviously have a list of questions, or I don't want to call it an interrogatory, but something long that really gets them to where they want to be like they might not even know what they want give us a, an idea of what kind of questions you ask and um you know how you get to the point where you're ready to build it
2: um the biggest thing is everybody asks what caliber should i build I and mean, then you know there's really no wrong answer to a caliber so we start with our caliber and what are you going to do with it you know if they're going to be out shooting precision rifle matches they really don't want to be using a 300 wind mag or a 300 rum a big rifle like that you know if they're going to be out long-range elk hunting, we need to build them something with a little bit more energy that's going to actually get them a kill. And then from there, we'll go, okay, what kind of weight are you looking for? Because we, we kind of take pride in a lot of our guns. We build ultralight rifles. Um, you know, if, if a guy's going to be shooting a match, he might want a little heavier rifle with a full adjustable cheek rest and a, um, a bottom metal and magazine fed versus a hunter that's going out backpacking on a, you know, a... Uh, a deer hunt, or for um, say the the mountain project guys, they're gone right now in Alaska. And yesterday, they just killed two dull sheep with one of our rifles that we built, and it's a six and a half pound rifle. So we just got to try to figure out what what you're going to be doing with the rifle. You know, what's the most practical, and you got to pick that balance and figure out what they need.
3: Speaking of six and a half pounds, are you seeing a lot more attention being given to the whole six point five world? And where do you see that being split up between the two flavors?
2: You mean as far as the caliber, the
3: 6.5? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a really good hunting cartridge, and it's a really good PRS cartridge or a, or a match cartridge. So, you know, sometimes some of these guys come in wanting these huge rifles, and I try to down-talk them into, you know, a 6.5 284 for hunting or a 6.5 Creedmoor for shooting matches. Um it's just a really good all-around cartridge,
3: you know. And do you also advise them as to what type of reloading equipment to get and how to get involved in that? Do they seek that advice from you as well? Yeah.
2: Oh, sorry. But yeah, they uh, a lot of guys, you know, come to me and I, I get to both worlds. We get the precision rifle shooters that know a lot, and a lot of them know more a lot more about reloading than I do. And so if we're going into a cartridge like that, a lot of the guys are shooting the Six five 47s, the 6BRs, the 6XCs, and then if a hunter comes in and he's uh, he doesn't reload, you know, I try to push him more towards a 6.5 Creed, more something that he can go buy off the shelf quality good ammo for that's not going to cost him a the lake.
1: You know, you mentioned earlier that your first uh, bolt action was a, a three oh eight, and you started shooting long range with it. A lot of people don't understand what a great cartridge that is, and and how many of the uh, long-range records were set with 308s, and and still, and if you're shooting F-class, FTR, you have to shoot a 308, and those guys are getting to the point where they're shooting almost as good a scores as the open guys are, which have any caliber available to them. So. You know the 308. Even though people would probably steer them away from a 308 if they said, "I want to shoot a thousand yards," it's a it's a perfectly acceptable cartridge to shoot a thousand yards and very dependable.
2: Yeah, some of the the F class guys. You know, it's a lot of technology with bullets nowadays, also that weren't available, whatever twenty fifteen years ago. You know, now you can shoot the 155.5 the the burgers, and you're getting you're getting pretty high pcs with some pretty good bullet choice you know
1: yeah well I know the uh, USA team is shooting uh, the 200 grain 20x uh, burger bullets at a thousand in their FTR guns uh, that's one of the things that the uh, coaches of the team is, is oh, insisted wow. on is that they all shoot the same loads so that you know anybody have a problem a 200 grain in a
4: 308 Yes,
1: you know the nice oh, thing about uh, the single shots is you don't have to worry about fitting them in a magazine, <laughs> so they've got. Right, the, long out, bullets to push them all faster. Exactly, and I'm not really sure exactly what the uh, velocity is, but I think it was twenty eight something, uh, which is not bad out of a three hundred eight for a two hundred grain bullet. Oh, that's
2: that's cruising for a three hundred eight with
3: a two hundred grain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. What kind of barrels do you uh, suggest? you do you uh, use or work with?
2: Uh, you know, it all comes back to that balance of what we're going to be doing with the rifle, the customer's going to be doing with the rifle. Um, you know, if if he's going to be out shooting a ton, some of these PRS guys are shooting a barrel out every three months, you know, and then some hunter guys are backpacking with them. So what I'll suggest is if you're trying to save weight on a hunter, we'll go with a light contour or a proof carbon barrel. You know, if, if it's a PRS shooter, we'll go into a stainless match, um, like a, You know, a Bartlett or a Harder, a Krieger, some top-quality
3: barrels.
1: So, that's one of the biggest changes in the last... You talked about the change in in bullets. Uh, Yeah, technology has really come along in the last 15 years bullet-wise. But from, you know, 40 years ago when I got into this industry, there was really only three good match-grade stainless barrel manufacturers in business. Uh, today, there are probably 15 really, really good barrel makers. So you have a lot of choices, uh, um, but there's some s- still some standard um, th- that I use when deciding what I'm going to do when building a rifle based on um, the weight of the rifle, what the rifle is supposed to do. You know, it's hard for me to want to build a, a rifle on any barrel contour lighter than a number three. But if a guy understands that, yeah, I'm not going to be able to have that four or five round group uh, because, you know, those barrels heat up so quick and start to walk a little bit. But, you know, I'm only looking for my first shot and maybe a follow up shot at a a mountain goat, you know, you know, at 10,000 feet, you know, then we then we'll build a gun on a, a number two or maybe even flew to number three. Um, so, what is it, and how did you come to some of your standards that that you use when building the rifle? I know there are a lot of customers that tell you something that you say, you know, I I just won't do that, um, but I suggest we do this instead. So, how did you get to that point?
2: Uh, just experience, and you know, I I always like tweaking with my own stuff, and I couldn't seem to leave a barrel on for more than two months without wanting to try something new, and so. All my guns, I'm always changing barrels on and trying different calibers and trying different things. And you know, we we go, let's say, a proof carbon barrel, a light Sendero on a 300 wind Mag might be okay for one or two shots. But you start shooting five to ten round strings, that thing's going to start walking. It's going to open up to you know three quarter one inch groups, and that's just something that we explain to the customer. If, if you're out hunting and you're going to try to get that one two or maybe worst case scenario, third shot off, um, you know we can do a little bit lighter contour and and it'll be fine, but if you're gonna go shoot a precision rifle match where you're shooting ten rounds in a minute and a half, it's not what you want. you know
1: you know when I was in the firearms business, my business was a little bit different than yours, but we we still had the same kind of mindset. I wouldn't build a rifle that I didn't believe in. I wouldn't do it in such a way that I wouldn't carry it and so when deciding on whose barrels to use uh, you know with all of the carbon fiber barrel people wanted us to to try them out and we'd put everyone on a gun and we'd shoot them and and we just and because we were testing them in 3 and 5 shot groups we we couldn't get behind putting one on for a customer and saying, look, if you don't shoot it more than two shots, you'll be happy with the way it shoots. Right. Uh, but, but well, I'm glad uh, you mentioned that. that, you know, John Clements works for proof and he's a good friend of mine from a long time back. And, and I've got a, a proof research barrel right here in the shop that I'm getting ready to put on a 300 wind mag uh, because I promised him I'd give it a try. They're doing some things now differently and doing some new things than when they first started in business. And I think it, It's allowed them to make better barrels. Uh, So I'm hoping that that's the case. I'll try these out. And, uh, you know, I still say that there's a place in the market for proof research barrels. And, you know, if you're looking for that lightweight gun and and you're only going to shoot, you know, a couple of rounds, maybe, you know, a a long shot and a follow-up, there's nothing wrong with them at all.
2: You know, I I love them. And, you know, I've I've tested one before I started selling them, and I put one on one of my 6.5 Creedmoors and I shot five or six local matches with it, and I, I won a match with a proof carbon barrel on a shooting factory 6.5 Creedmoor ammo. And the small calibers like that, you know, they hold their tolerances like a stainless barrel. Now, if you go into a big, big magnum cartridge like a 300 Win Mag or a 300 Rum, they create so much heat, that's when we start to say, okay, these proof barrels are awesome, but you just got to take it with a grain of salt knowing what you're going to do with the rifle.
3: I've always been fascinated by barrels, um, more so when I read somewhere that your average barrel has a lifespan of about two seconds. And and that's really true because by the time, you know, travels through and at 3,200 or 3,000 feet per second, you know, if you put 5,000 rounds down, that's like two seconds. Um, it's also kind of yep. funny because as you started talking about the uh, carbon barrel, Kelly hands me one. He actually had it here in his office, so I'm holding one in my hand from proof, and I've never actually seen one. It's a pretty neat barrel. Um, but, yeah, it, barrels are fascinating. And I want to ask you, we talked about a little bit of match shooting. As far as long-range hunting, I mean, in the past five years, long-range hunting has really grown um, from, from where some folks used to say, you know, if it's under 300, take the shot. After that, it's not what they call an ethical kill. And now you can make ethical... Uh, harvests at you know thirteen, fourteen, sixteen hundred. I think, who was it? We just had a guest on whose son hit one out at two thousand. Was that uh, Todd Hodnett? Yeah. yeah, Todd Hodnett's son took a, a deer I think at two thousand or twenty one hundred, something like that. W- what do you do wow. for long range hunting guns? We'll say that
2: again. What do I? What about them? Yeah.
3: W- what do you do with long range hunting guns? What do you suggest? What are some of your builds look like? <laughs>
2: Well, most of them are going to be a little bit lighter weight, you know, a lot of Macmillan carbon stocks, the Game Scout, things like that. Um, We're going to usually use either a lighter contour barrel or a proof barrel, but the biggest thing is those guns, they all will hold and shoot long range, but the the customer needs to understand that that's just the gun and that they need to go out and get the practice in and, and to make those shots, you know. Um, I think a lot of the hunting world has forced it down a lot of these guys' throats that you just go out and you buy a BDC reticle or you buy our system, you can go make thousand-yard kills, and it's just not true, you know, and so I've been trying to take a lot of the the match uh, mentality and bringing it over to the hunting world to saying, okay, we can make these kills, we can do it fast, we can do it effectively, but this is what the customer needs to know before you just go out and start, you know, in lead
1: at 1,000 yards on animals. Hey, Nick, I just got uh, word from the studio that Thomas is on hold. you want to get him involved in this? Yeah, get
4: him
5: on.
1: Okay. Hey, Kevin, uh, would you go ahead and put Thomas through, and we'll get him involved in this segment. Okay. Hey, Thomas, how are you?
5: Good morning, Kelly. how are, How are you guys
1: doing this morning? Yeah, we're doing fine, and and Nick was actually doing pretty good without you, though he admitted that you're you really the personality of the duo. So I'm glad you're able to join us. Uh, we're talking about long range hunting right now, and and he was going through how he decides to, you know, which caliber he's going to use, what the gun's going to be built like. Uh, you know, that's always one of the hardest things because normally when the customer comes to you, he's not really sure what he wants. He's just been hearing a lot about this long-range hunting, and, and, and he wants to, to get in on it. So, um, you know, I'll let Nick finish uh, the conversation that he was having, and if you have anything to add to it, you can jump right in.
2: Sounds good. Yeah, so we just really enforce that we'll we'll spend some time with the customer and teach him actually and help him understand what, what the energy is doing and the BC of the bullet, and that way they understand exactly what's going on with that bullet. Instead of just going out and buying a system and thinking they can go shoot and take animals at a thousand yards, it's just not ethical unless you really know what you're doing, and then it's 100% ethical.
1: I always argue that an ethical shot is one where the animal is, is harvested with the least amount of trauma to him as possible. Um, and, and, you know, when you look at and I am not dissing um, bow hunters at all, but when you look at the way an animal dies after being poked with a stick, uh, you wonder how that could ever be qualified as an ethical kill. But, you know, that's that's the way that, you know, we hunted this animal or these animals for hundreds and hundreds of years. So... Um, you know, I'm in favor of any way that a person feels that they're responsible for their part in it. And as you said earlier, that that really involves a lot of education because nothing, you can't shoot uh, an arrow well, uh, you can't shoot a rifle well, you can't do anything well if you don't practice it and you don't work at it.
2: Exactly. And you know, I, being an archery hunter on top of that is, you know, I had a, a pretty a trophy unit archery tag here in Arizona a few years ago. And You know, I wounded a bull with a bow, and, you know, I lost it and never found it, and, um, you know, it's a rough, rough feeling, and it's not something I ever want to do again. I mean, not not saying I don't want to archery hunt again, but I don't want to go back and wound animals, you know, and I know quite a few animals that got wounded on the archery hunts, and there's a lot of people that disagree with long-range hunting, and it, it, it's all kind of a balance in the same, same scenarios. You know, if you know what you're doing and you're out there and you've practiced and it, it's
1: ethical. You know? Yeah. I'm glad you were on enough, honest enough to bring that up, Nick, because I don't think that happens enough. I don't think our listeners uh, or anybody uh, talks about, you know, what can happen and what has happened. Uh, I've been fortunate that um, the only animal that I didn't find was a, a texas whitetail on a texas ranch down in, in southern texas and two weeks later they told me we'll find it as soon as the caracara birds tell us where it is so two weeks yeah. later i got a call and said hey we found your deer and the reason that i didn't find him is because he ran headfirst into a thicket so thick that he never fell down when they found him he was still standing up and so when i looked under the bush i saw a you know, what I thought were branches happened, probably happened to be his legs. And I just didn't recognize him as, as being a deer. But, um, you know, it's one of those things where that was just such a bad feeling that, yeah, you know, it's going to happen. If you shoot and hunt enough, you're going to have a situation where you're going to get into an uncomfortable position because either the shot wasn't exactly what you had hoped it was, or, and for whatever reason, and, and there are some things that we just can't understand, the bullet didn't do what you thought it was, or the arrow didn't do what you thought it would do, and and the animal had enough adrenaline to get far enough away, you just couldn't track him. So uh, yeah. I really appreciate you bringing that up. Hey, Thomas, we spent yeah. some time together in Raton when we were uh, at the King of Two Mile. Uh, what did you think of the event?
5: No, for sure, Kelly. That was a great event. I think uh, ELR is going to grow and turn into something that uh, we've all seen it have the capability of turning into. Uh, the event was a lot of fun as a shooter and as a spectator. You know, t- uh, towards the end of the of the event, uh, luckily uh, I got to shoot. Uh, we had a three seventy five ShyTech on a um, on a McMillan three lug action with the McMillan stock that we uh we took up there and originally nick was going to be uh shooting that and something came up and uh nick had to step down and it turned out that i ended up going up there and shooting and had a great time i mean it was uh with about a, a 15 minute notice he threw all his stuff in the car and headed to
2: raton never even shot the rifle before so <laughs>
1: <laughs> well yeah. knowing the challenges um how do you think you did assess your performance your rifles performance and what that's going to do to help you improve next year when you show up
5: oh for sure uh, definitely going to have more time behind the system uh, yeah. I was confident in the in the rifle and in the in the loads um, Nick had went out a few weekends before the event and he had he had shot some rounds through it and he he told me that the rifle was on and you know it's it's all about trust at that point you just say hey if you if you tell me that the rifle's on we're good to go so uh like Nick said I threw everything in the car and hopped on the road and headed up toward Tone and met up with you guys and um actually also teamed up with uh John Guybe and Duncan with uh JJ Rock and Duncan actually shot very well he I believe he finished 8th place and um had we not had the scope issue I think we would have finished even higher than that
1: Well, I'm really proud of you. I know that it was a tough situation for you to just jump into. Unfortunately, guys, we're out of time. I know this uh, stuff seems like it just flies by, and especially when you got here a little bit late, Thomas. I'll tell you what, I'll have you guys back on. Make sure we get you here on a day where you can actually get the the full episode, and and we'll spend some more time with you. But thanks for being here with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us, Uh, Kelly. Okay. Uh, Remember, guys, that's Owens Armory... And real easy to find them on the web. Check out what they do. Uh, g- great gun builders and, and very conscientious about what they do. I'd like to ask all of our listeners to stick with us for the next couple of minutes while we take a short commercial break. And we'll be right back with our next guest. <laughs>
6: for exciting video content, live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. For over 40 years, McMillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gun stock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, Macmillan Stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the Macmillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at Macmillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com.
0: We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up?
6: Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports.
0: You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show. Hi, thanks for sticking with us.
1: We're uh, back for the second half of our show. Um, Had a a great couple of guests on earlier. Really enjoyed talking about it. You know, they're one of the companies that are are pretty broad when it comes to accuracy and and long-range shooting, both in hunting and competition. Uh, Our next guest is synonymous with accuracy. Uh, His family's been in this business uh, probably longer than my family has, or at least as long. And he's probably got as many people working in uh, family members working in his business as as the McMillan family has. So uh, I want to welcome Ian Kelbly to the show. And uh, he's, uh, I think, third generation. Is that right, Ian?
4: Yes, that's correct, Kelly. Thanks for having me today.
1: Yeah, welcome to the show. Uh, first off, I'd like for you to give everybody an opportunity to, to get your website so they can go online and, and check out Kelby and everything that you do. There's so much that you guys have been involved in and that you do. We're not going to be able to cover it all in a half an hour. So let's make sure that the, the listeners get to hear your website.
4: All right, our website is k e l b ly dot com, and our Instagram is at Kelbly Rifles, and our Facebook page is Kelbly Rifles as well.
1: Um, you're—I uh, I don't know if you're quite a millennial, but you're in your late twenties.
4: Yeah, I'm turning twenty-eight in a month here.
1: Yeah, no. so you're you're a younger generation. I know you've been involved in the business since you were you know, knee high to a grasshopper, as they say. Uh, why don't you talk about you know growing up, growing up with the Kelbley name and the business and and shooting and and everything that got you to where you are today?
4: Well, growing up in the family um, has been a a very interesting thing. Um, You know, Grandpa started shooting uh, prone uh, twenty-two rimfire competitions in 1952 with a Winchester Model 52C, uh, which I can see sitting on the gun rack in front of me here, and all of the rifles he's built over the years. And he really got into bench rest in uh, the mid-50s at Chippewa Rifle Range, uh, which is right down the road from us here. Um, His... Quest for accuracy um, started back then, and he's been making his own stocks and chambering his own barrels since he got into accuracy. And uh, he's a self-taught gunsmith, uh, and he taught all of uh, all of our employees since then. And we recently, my father and his two brothers, purchased the company from him about six years ago. Um, and so we really kind of changed directions of the company from bench rest to all aspects of competition out there today.
1: So just so that everybody knows, grandpa is George Kelbury.
4: Yes. George Kelbury okay. senior. Um, he was a former home builder and in the late seventies, when interest rates really went through the roof, he built the rifle range that we have here today, uh, which is where we hold the super shoot, which is synonymous with, uh, World Bench Press competitions, and is the largest bench rest competition in the world today. We have a 60 bench range uh, here, and we've held 395 competitors at the Super Shoot here before.
1: That's amazing, and I'm really glad you brought that up. Uh, McMillan uh, has always considered the Super Shoot in 1973. As the day that we started in business because it was the first time anyone had seen a McMillan fiberglass stock in public. So that's the day that we use as, as our beginning date for the company. And that was
4: 1973. Oh, that's
1: awesome. So you, um, your grandfather kind of started the business and then, then your father, George Jr.? Yes. Um, My father's
4: James, and my
1: uncle,
4: George Jr., and my other uncle, Michael, uh, are the three owners of the company now. Um, My uncle, George, uh, is the head of the CNC shop. He programs all of our CNC machines and, and handles all of our guys that are CNC operators. My uncle, Mike, heads up our stock shop. Uh, which we purchased Lee Six Enterprises in 1999 and have been building um, carbon fiber stocks here since 1999. And he heads that up. And then my father does all the licensing, um, he does sales and marketing, and he also travels around to a bunch of different shoots around the country to show products.
1: Uh, your dad is the one that I know the best of the three, Jim. Uh, he and I kind of grew up in this business together. I think we're pretty close to the same age. We had this similar kind of working for our father uh, traumatic <laughs> experiences. <laughs> I think everybody, including you, can probably relate to that. Uh, I will tell people that... that Working with my father was the best thing that ever happened because though we didn't get along very well when we first started working together, and I tell people I got fired or quit once a month for the first three years, um, <laughs> we ha- because we had to develop a relationship where we could work together, it created a relationship relationship that we never would have had had we not worked together. So I'm really thankful that we put up through all the hard times to get to the good times. And, and when my dad passed away, uh, he and I were good friends. We were partners. We were fishing buddies. And uh, all the things that we probably never would have been had I not stuck around uh, when my mom said, come on back, Kelly. You know, he didn't mean it. Yeah, so, I
4: have uh, to say that's, that's probably one of the coolest things of working with family. Um, I grew up. I started coming to the shop when Grandma would watch us uh, on days when Mom was working and Dad was working. And my grandparents lived right above the shop here. So, you know, we would be up there hanging out with Grandma and riding bikes in the, in the front lobby here and, you know, playing kickball in the front lobby while all the guys were working. So you just kind of grew up in the shop atmosphere. And uh, I grew up walking into the office that I'm in today uh, with my Grandpa sitting at the desk you know, doing all the accounting and and making sure everything's running right. And now I look across that exact same desk. I grew up looking at my grandpa, and he's sitting at a desk in the corner in the same office. And uh, it's it's a pretty cool experience um, being able to be around your family like that. It definitely builds a bond uh, with your family that I don't think you would ever have if you weren't working with them every day. I work with my brother, uh, my two uncles, my father, and then myself. So there's five of us Cowboys here. And then, you know, Grandpa's still around. So he comes down and, you know, likes to, likes to talk with us quite a bit on stuff. And it's, it's, a, it's a really cool experience because we're all super close. We can all joke around, have fun. We'll get mad at each other over problems. But, you know, at the end of the day, you're still a family working together, working towards the same goals.
1: You know, I think you guys were really lucky that that your grandfather decided to sell the business to his sons, because once that sale happened, no matter how much he wanted to be the boss, still, it, it just wasn't the case. I think a lot of cases where guys turn their company over to their kids, but they don't, they don't make that transition and they still have that feeling that, well, you know, I'm still really running this company. So uh, I I think that's probably been good for you that at that time he realized he stepped away and everybody else realized it, but he was still around where they could go to him for advice and still make him feel like he had something to contribute, but he didn't feel compelled to have to, you know, kind of flex his muscles and get things done his way.
4: Yeah, he, he, he trained us all well enough that he knew the company was in good hands. And, you know, we all have the utmost respect for him because our entire livelihood and, you know, our lifestyle and our employees' livelihoods and lifestyle has all contributed to him. So it's it's a really good atmosphere for all of us to work in.
1: Well, that's really exciting. I want to talk about the work. you You guys have done some amazing things when it comes to accuracy both in bench rest i know you're really big now into f class which is is a place where i've just kind of stuck my toe back in after having been away from the competitive uh part of the business for a while um tell me you guys make a stole panda now why is it called a stole and not a
4: kelby all right so the story goes back when grandpa started building rifles um He started the company here, Building Rifles, in 1981, and he partnered up with his best friend, Ralph Stoll, who was out of West Virginia. Um, Ralph Stoll is famous for building the first-ever aluminum bolt-action rifle receiver. Um, I believe it was featured in the 1969 July edition of American Rifleman. It was on the front cover as the first-ever aluminum action. So as homage to Ralph Stoll and his designs, we have named every action since then a Stoll action. And it's it's kind of a sad story because in 1981, Grandpa and Ralph started in a, a small manual shop. Um, they had a couple of lathes and a couple of mills and just the two of them. And they made about, I think, 180 actions the first year. Now... With those actions, they had to time all the triggers specifically to those actions, and everything was hand-fitted after they made it on the manual machines. And unfortunately, in 1982, Ralph Stoll passed away suddenly from a heart attack. And um, we've just carried on the legacy of the Stoll action ever since, you know, just as a thank you and an homage to Ralph.
1: That's a great story and a real testament to how a company with integrity can really do something just because it's the right thing to do and because they want to to try to support the the memory and the legacy of somebody who was instrumental in in starting the, you know the the aluminum action business
4: yes exactly and what's really cool about grandpa and ralph was just how how knowledgeable they were on manual machines and on drafting. I mean, I can go back into the records and find the old drawings uh, from where Ralph made his own script that is on the side of our actions today. Um, So the engraving and everything on our actions is actually, uh, it's called uh, stole. It's the stole lettering. (laughs) So it's a a really neat thing.
1: That's cool. Uh, So how many actions do you make?
4: Different types. Uh, Last year, we made around 1,100 actions. This year, we will be closer to 2,000 actions a year, Uh, with the majority of those, about 70% of those being the steel atlas actions, which is a Remington 700 footprint action, and then the other 30% being the aluminum actions, whether it's our short-range Panda, our F-Class Panda, which has the integral recoil lug and the integral 20 MOA Picatinny rail, um, or our 338 Lapua Magnum Panda, which is a 35 MOA integral Picatinny rail with an integral recoil lug as well.
1: So, what do the Atlas actions get used for, and where do you sell those? Who buys them? Uh, and you're not, you still make a few rifles, and I don't mean to, to make that sound like an insignificant part of your business, but you're not a rifle manufacturer to speak of. Is that correct?
4: Uh, actually, we manufacture. Last year was about two hundred and forty-seven rifles, and most of those actually leave the country. Um, only about thirty rifles a year stay inside of the inside of the United States. We sell to forty-four different countries, um, and we're actually listed on the rifle exporter uh, just two rifles behind HS Precision this year. So our big markets are Italy, Germany, Australia, and South Africa that we sell most of our rifles to. And most of those being uh, F-class rifles, uh, bench rest rifles, and hunting rifles as well. So we actually specialize in making parts, though. Uh, our big business is making actions. Um, and the Atlas Action, to answer your question, is being made for the hunting market, and also for the tactical shooting market. Um, A big number of our actions go out as the Atlas Tactical, which has a black nitride finish. Um, It has a dual-pinned recoil lug, a pinned 20 MOA rail on it. It comes with a nice tactical bolt knob, and it also features our TG Mechanical Ejector System. And the TG Mechanical Ejector System is actually a pretty neat design. It is a sliding ejector. So there's no spring pressure on your case. So there's no undue chamber pressure. Um, and depending on how hard you pull the bolt back and hit the bolt stop is how hard it's going to eject the case out of there. So there's no spring to fail, um, and there's nothing causing any pressure on the back of that case, which leads to better accuracy out of the action. And then we also make stocks. Uh, You know, carbon fiber stocks, nowhere near like McMillan. We only make about 300 stocks a year, which I think you guys do in about a week. (laughs) And then uh, we also also manufacture aluminum scope rings. And our aluminum scope rings are actually uh, diamond in the rough. A lot of guys, uh, a lot of newer shooters don't know much about our scope rings. But we actually gun drill them in a giant bar and then... CNC machine them on that same bar and then split them and keep them in matched pairs. So they're actually the most concentric ring on the market that you can purchase because they're machined side by side. Uh, they're kept in the matched pairs and it's just a, a top notch product that can go on any rifle with a Picatinny mount or any rifle with an Onshoot style dovetail, which is an 11 millimeter dovetail or a Kelby style dovetail, which is a three eighths, uh, with dovetail as well.
3: Ian, Zev here. I'm going to show my ignorance here and probably make folks laugh, but you've got a uh, 30-millimeter 25 MOA ring set. How do you make sure that you're positioning those rings to actually get that 25 MOA, depending on the length of the bell housing, excuse me, of your scope? How do you actually determine where those Picatinny rail uh, rings have to be in order to achieve that amount of MOA?
4: So those rings um, in, in the instructions, you're to keep the numbers, uh, I believe to the left side of the rifle um, there's, the rings are marked F and R so you have a front and a rear ring and those have to be on the same side of the rifle and then you have to have a spacing outside to outside of the ring of 5.995 inches Okay. so that's how we're able to set that moa so it doesn't work for a lot of rimfire actions but it works for just about any of your um dovetail uh borden actions the kelby actions the um, pierce actions or anybody that offers a kelby style dovetail on their basis as long as you can get that 5.995 inches outside the outside those rings are going to work for you and it's uh a lower-cost alternative to buying a base and another set of rings. You can use your standard base that you already have on top of your action.
3: Yeah, that, that's what interests me. I wanted to know how that was done, so thank you very much for that explanation.
1: You know, Kelby's been synonymous uh, with the Stole Panda Action being one of the biggest. You know, I've talked about this a lot. I think that, that your grandfather and my father, they should be in the Benchrest Hall of Fame. You know, unfortunately, the NBRSA or uh, Hall of Fame, they don't allow anybody but shooters in. But, you know, I i think that both of those guys made the biggest difference in bench rest than anybody else in history. There's been some good barrel makers uh, over the years. Uh, right now, I know that Krieger is making almost every bench rest barrel that's out there. I know Hart will complain about that, but... You know, there's a lot of guys who won't shoot a button barrel anymore. They have to shoot a Krieger, and it's got to be a cut rifle barrel. But but with the Stolpanda action and a McMillan fiberglass stock, I don't think you can name two other guys who made a bigger impact in the bench rest game than those two men did. And I think that there should be a place for them in the Hall of Fame because of that.
4: I 100% agree with that. Um, they really changed the face of competition and changed the face of accuracy. Um, what's really neat is uh, right in front of my desk I'm looking at my grandfather's wall of rifles and as you go over the years you're looking at steel actions in a wood stock and the wood stock is there to help deaden the vibrations from the steel action um, composite stocks I don't think really would have ever taken off as much uh, if the Benchrest guys wouldn't have picked up the aluminum actions and the composite stocks that McMillan was making um, and the reason for that being is Steel vibrates a lot, especially um, when you have a long barrel hanging off of it. So you had to have something to deaden those vibrations. And with the implement of the aluminum actions out there, uh, aluminum actually deadens the harmonics coming off the barrel into the receiver and really made way um, for the composite stocks to come out. So your father and my grandfather went hand in hand and um, definitely changing the face of accuracy. And that's why most rifles you see out there now on the F-Class line have a McMillan stock and have a Kelby F-Class Panda action in it. And what's really neat to see is the change in people's preferences. You know, back in the the 70s, it was all wood stocks with steel actions. And then in the mid-80s and on, everything switched to composite stocks with an aluminum action, And now we're starting to see a trend where guys are going back to wood stocks with steel action. Um, So, you know, it's just like fashion. It seems like uh, there's fads that come in and out about every 30 years. Um, So hopefully we start seeing a resurgence of aluminum actions and composite stocks again here soon.
1: Well, one of the things I can tell you about the wood stocks that they're using, they're either really super dense hardwoods, uh, unlike... uh, a majority of the stocks that were put on factory rifles back in the day, you know, they got to the point where they had used up most of the walnut. Walnut's actually fairly soft. Uh, I know that because I'm into woodworking these days and have some experience with that. But, uh, but they're now using epoxy laminated hardwoods um, with layers of carbon fiber in them. And so they've really tried to do everything they can do to counteract the natural tendency of wood to change dimensions with, uh, heat and humidity. So, and that's one of the things I think back in the, you know, when having the super shoot or, uh, going down to the crawdad in Louisiana from Arizona, where the, the humidity was about 10%, going down to the crawdad shoot, where it was going to be 65, 70, 80%, uh, no telling where those guns were going to shoot the day after you got there, after that wood had absorbed some of that. So, yeah, I think that's a, that played a big part as well. You know, there's all kinds of things that have been attributed to the improvement in accuracy, but when you look back at it, my uncle's world record um, and for the smallest shoot uh, group ever shot stood from 1973 until 2012. So no matter what the advances had been made, there were still some really good group shot back in those days. Uh, Ian, well, we've, got just a, we've got just a couple of minutes, so I, or just a minute. I want to give you a chance to, to let our listeners know about your website again so that they can look you up and um, any last words you've got for us.
4: Uh, our website, again, is www.kelbly.com. And uh, a few last words. I hope everybody uh, has a great weekend, can pull some triggers, and they shoot straight. And uh, we we really at Kelby's here want to thank everybody that has supported our family since 1981 by buying our products. And, uh, you know, we hope that we can continue supporting the shooting sports as much as possible and uh, really excited to see um, how our customer breaks, how our customer base grows with our business over the next few years, because we're really on a big track to expand our business and be able to get these products out in front of more people and more consumers that have never seen us before.
1: Well, I know that uh, you're going to have no problem with growing your business. Ian. Mm-hmm. Uh, with you being involved and, and your uncles really have really enjoyed the relationship that McMillan has had with Kelby. I know I'm going to Connaught tomorrow uh, I'll be up there to watch the U.S. team, which Kelby is also a sponsor. Uh, I'll tell them all you said, hi, we'll root them on for another world championship. I want to thank you for your contribution to that as well. It's It's been something that I really take a lot of pride in.
4: Yes, thank you, Kelly, and thank you for being a sponsor as well. It's great seeing our U.S. guys up there shooting so well and continue to shoot so well over the years, especially like Team Sinclair. I know you're a sponsor of them, and we are as well. And those guys just go out, and every year at the national championships, they blow me away.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for everything you do for the shooting sports. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll have you back on when we get some more time.
4: All right. Sounds great, Kelly. Thank you so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening today.
1: Yeah, great. Thanks, Uh, once again, we have come to the end of another great show. I'd like to thank our listeners for spending their very valuable time with us. Remember, we'll be here next Friday on Voice America Sports Channel for another episode of Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. It's going to be a great weekend here in the Southwest. I know it all over the country. Go out and do something outside. Maybe uh, go to the range, uh, do some shooting, enjoy this great country. I know I'm going to be in Canada, and I'm, I'm going to enjoy coming back to the United States once I. Uh, get to watch the F-Glass win another world championship. So thanks for being with us. We'll see you next week.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week.